0: Chapter eighteen of War Surgery from Firing Line to Base. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. War Surgery from Firing Line to Base by Basil Hughes and H. Stanley Banks. Chapter eighteen Gunshot Injuries of Bone. Bone injury resulting from gunshot wounds may range from contusion to simple or compound fracture, either of a limited or extensive degree. Simple fracture in this connection is comparatively rare, but compound fractures form a very large proportion of the wounds of the present war. Simple fractures result either from blows with spent pieces of shell or from the falling in of dugouts or pieces of the parapet they differ from the simple fractures of civilian practice in that displacement of the fragments is greater and contusion of the soft parts is more marked compound fractures differ in many details from those observed in civilian practice in that comminution and splintering of bone are often extreme there may be considerable loss in bony continuity large arteries and nerves may be implicated and there is usually severe laceration of the muscles and of other soft structures. The types of compound fracture most commonly seen are 1. A gutter fracture of bone without destruction of continuity. Such a fracture is usually the result of a glancing blow, and the bone may or may not be fissured. 2. A clean perforation of bone without destruction of continuity, but practically always associated with fissure three a fissured fracture of bone with little displacement four comminution of bone with or without destruction of continuity the degree of damage sustained by a bone will depend upon the nature and velocity of the missile and the angle at which the bone is struck if the bone be struck tangentially by a missile fired at close range the blow will probably be glancing in nature and little damage to bone will result the missile passing on and emerging from the tissues if on the other hand the blow be direct and the velocity high then severe comminution or splintering of the bone will follow a rifle bullet fired at close range and striking a bone tangentially may be turned in its course and though the wound of entry may be small the wound of exit is large and lacerated again a rifle bullet fired at close range may strike the shaft of a long bone direct causing severe comminution and continuing its course emerge from the tissues leaving a small wound of exit this class of wound shows little tendency to become infected if the fracture is early immobilized the most serious fractures are those caused by pieces of high explosive shell or bomb the bone is comminuted splintered and in some cases pulverized small spicules of bone are scattered broadcast into the surrounding muscles and on more than one occasion a bony spicule has been the cause of a secondary hemorrhage by eroding its way into a large vessel the fractured ends of the bone are often displaced and may be pressing upon the main vessels of the limb laceration of the soft structures is usually so extreme that they are scarcely recognizable and important vessels and nerves may be displaced some distance from their normal position again fracture of bone may involve a joint cavity either directly or indirectly thus the fracture may itself be part of an injury which involves the joint directly or a long fissure may run from the site of fracture through the articular end of the bone practically all wounds involving compound fracture of bone and caused by high explosive are highly infected and they are today the most difficult class of wound to deal with for there is not only the bony injury to consider but also the extensive destruction and infection of the soft parts it is also very important to remember that bone as the result of injury has its vitality lowered just as much as if not more than the soft structures and that it is therefore just as prone to infection bone when once infected is the most difficult tissue of all to sterilize complications immediate complications are one osteomyelitis Two secondary hemorrhage, remote complications are: one, stiffness and limited movement; two, deformity; three, paralysis; four, nonunion; five, sinus. Osteomyelitis was at one time a frequent sequel of compound fracture of bone. Today, since the adoption of wound excision, perfect immobilization, and the process of Continuous sterilization, it is rarely seen. Secondary hemorrhage may be either mechanical or septic in origin. It results either from an imperfect reduction of the fractured ends of the bone or from a detached bone spicule eroding its way into an artery, or it may be due to infection. Stiffness and limited movement are probably the most common sequelae of compound fracture. They are brought about by prolonged separation in wounds that have been allowed to remain open indefinitely, and in which as a result, extensive fibrosis has taken place in the muscles of the wounded limb, with matting of nerves and other soft structures in fibrous tissue. Excessive and irregular formation of callus due to growth of bone from detached spicules which have been driven into the muscles adds to the infirmity deformity results from union of the fragments in malposition paralysis occur either from laceration or tearing of a nerve or later result from the nerves being caught up in callus or scar tissue non-union may be brought about by prolonged separation and a consequent lowered vitality of the patient by wide separation of the fractured ends of the bones the result of imperfect reduction and fixation of the fracture or by the inclusion of soft tissues between the fractured ends sinus the presence of a sinus denotes either bony sequestration or a foreign body success in the treatment of compound fracture lies in early sterilization of the wound and secondary suture by these means excessive formation of fibrous tissue is avoided massage and movements can be commenced at an early date the patient can early be got onto crutches which avoids prolonged confinement to bed with the consequent body wasting and other evils stiffness and limitation of movement are reduced to a minimum union of the fractured bone is hastened and as a result a number of cases can be returned to duty without leaving the country the innominate bone fracture of the innominate bone may be associated with wounds of the buttock the, the upper thigh perineum and penetrating wounds of the abdominal cavity large wounds of the buttock complicated by fracture of the os innominatum at one time formed one of the most serious and fatal types of wound with which the surgeon had to deal they are exceedingly prone to gas gangrene infection and are associated with considerable shock wounds in the region of the perineum which are complicated by fracture of the pubic or ischial bones are apt to involve the external genitalia the bladder rectum and urethra penetrating wounds of the abdominal cavity associated with fracture of the os are serious from the point of view of spicules of bone that are carried on by the missile and inflict severe damage on the viscera. Complications are 1. Infection of both soft parts and bone 2. Damage to the external genitalia 3. Damage to the bladder, rectum, or other abdominal viscera, owing to the proximity of the wound to the external organs of excretion infection of a virulent type is almost universal gas gangrene infection of large buttock wounds was at one time as fatal a condition as any while osteomyelitis of the inominate bone was by no means infrequent damage to the external genitalia may vary from evisceration of one or both testicles to destruction of the greater part of the organs Portions of the penis may be carried away or partially detached, or the scrotum may be penetrated or perforated without damage to the testes. Should the wound be situated in the perineum, the urethra may be divided or the bladder penetrated. Wounds of the buttock or perineum may involve the terminal part of the rectum or the anal canal. Treatment A. On the battlefield after dressing the wounds a binder made from putties should be wrapped around the pelvis and the patient carefully carried on a stretcher to the advanced dressing station and from this unit he should be sent as rapidly as possible to the casualty clearing station a quarter of a grain of morphia should be given to relieve pain before leaving the advanced dressing station both his legs should be fastened together and a liston splint applied to one side b at the casualty clearing station an anaesthetic should be administered and after shaving the pubes, perineum and anus the skin should be thoroughly disinfected if abdominal or pelvic viscera are involved treatment must be carried out along the lines recommended in the chapter dealing with abdominal injuries treatment of the wound if the wound be situated in the buttock it should be completely excised and a keldaken dressing applied all loose and dead pieces of bone should be removed and absolute hemostasis secured before applying the dressing if the wound involve the external genitalia treatment will vary with the amount of damage done should one or both testicles be prolapsed and partially or wholly eviscerated and be grossly infected and gangrenous as is usually the case under these conditions then single or double orchidectomy must be performed if the testicle is only prolapsed and not eviscerated it may be replaced and after excision of the wound in the scrotum one or two sutures may be inserted a carol tube being included in the scrotum cavity should the testes be only partially eviscerated then the infected eviscerated portion should be removed and the remainder if healthy should be replaced the scrotum can now be sutured and a carol's tube included in the scrotal sac should the body of the penis be damaged and the continuity of the urethra destroyed an attempt should be made to suture the defect after excision of the wound if the surgeon is satisfied that the vitality of the distal parts of the organ warrants such a procedure if the portion of the organ distal to the wound is dead then it should be removed and the proximal opening of the urethra should be sutured to the skin if the wound is situated in the perineum a catheter should first be passed to ascertain whether or not the urethra is intact the wound should then be excised if the urethra is torn but its continuity not entirely destroyed it is best to leave it and trust temporarily to a urinary fistula a carol dakin dressing should be applied to the excised wound should the lower part of the rectum be wounded in association with a compound fracture of the inaminate bone then left inguinal colostomy is the operation of choice in order to divert the fecal current and bring about sterilization of the wound after colostomy has been performed the wound should be completely excised and a carol taken dressing applied the lower limb of the gut can be washed through six hourly with half or three-quarters strength use all. we have employed full strength use all and seen no harm whatever result from its use it is very important in the excision of these wounds to remove all loose pieces of bone, and also any portion of doubtful vitality. During the operation, two pints of saline solution with sodium bicarbonate and brandy should be administered subcutaneously. As soon as the patient is fit to travel, he should be evacuated to the base. C. At the base hospital. The wounds are dressed on the day after arrival and bacteriologically reported upon. An X-ray is also taken to show the extent of bone damage. As soon as the wounds are sterile, they are submitted to secondary suture. Large wounds of the buttock have given most gratifying results, and out of a series of 40 cases, 34 killed by primary union after secondary suture performed at the end of the 12th day twelve of these being associated with fracture of the iliac bone of the remaining six cases two completely gaped and four partially they all eventually healed and there were no deaths wounds about the perineum heal best by granulation and have not been submitted to secondary suture cases in which colostomy has been performed are treated until the wound involving the lower rectum has healed when a lupitrine's clamp is applied and the fecal current again established this done an ordinary plastic operation is undertaken to close the colostomy wound. this operation was undertaken in three cases all of which did extremely well the patients have been allowed up on crutches at intervals varying from a month to six weeks from the time of receiving their injury the femur compound fracture of the femur at one time formed the most fatal wound of the war of a series of thirty cases seen in the firing line in nineteen fifteen eighteen died and four underwent amputation in the trenches owing to extreme mutilation and the impossibility of immediate evacuation the four cases recovered thus out of the remaining twenty-six cases there were eighteen deaths giving the appalling death rate of seventy percent the femur may be fractured in any part of its length and the fracture may involve either the hip joint or knee joint there is no classical displacement of the fragments for they may occupy any position while small spicules of bone may be completely detached and distributed far and wide into the surrounding tissues compound fracture of the femur may be complicated by rupture of large arteries and nerves and excessive disruption and infection of the soft parts is nearly always present complications most to be feared are osteomyelitis septicemia embolism and secondary hemorrhage associated with compound fracture of the femur may be foot drop owing to damage of the external popliteal nerve this should always be suspected, and, at present, steps should be taken from the commencement for its correction. Treatment A. On the battlefield After application of a field or shell dressing, the limb should be thoroughly immobilized in the position in which it is found. There should be no attempt at reduction. This can be accomplished by means of two rifles used as an outer splint and by pieces of ration box used as posterior interior and anterior splints and secured to the limb with putties or three-corner bandages the damaged limb is now secured to its fellow and after the administration of a quarter of a grain of morphia hypodermically the patient is removed with all speed to the advanced dressing station and thence with as little delay as possible to the casualty clearing station if the limb is hopelessly mangled and attached to the body by a few damaged structures only it should be severed forthwith and the main vessels tied b at the casualty clearing station compound fracture of the femur is always associated with severe reflex shock and severe hemorrhage may have occurred in the line or during transit the patient should be put to bed made warm and two pints of saline with brandy and sodium bicarbonate should be administered subcutaneously when the pulse and general condition have improved he is taken to the operating theater where an anesthetic preferably open ether is administered another pint of saline should be slowly administered subcutaneously during the operation when the patient is anesthetized the splint is removed the pubes perineum anus and limb are shaved and the skin of the whole limb thoroughly cleaned. The wound must now be completely excised and thoroughly opened up all obviously dead and detached pieces of bone, especially detached spicules, should be removed and also the missile. This done, the wound is stitched widely open, see figure two nineteen, and propped further open if necessary. By means of stout rubber tubes absolute hemostasis must be secured extension is next applied and for this purpose we have used sterile gauze and pages glue the extension should come right up to the wound see figure 221 the splint is now applied the best splint being a thomas's knee splint or a wallace maybury extension splint we have usually employed the latter See figure 223. Should the wound involve the perineum or buttock and so render a Thomas's knee splint impracticable, then the splint shown in figure 225 can be used. Figure 226 shows the splint applied with a back splint extending from the upper to the lower transverse bars. Extension is taken between the axilla and the stirrup at the foot of the splint after applying the splint extension is now made by means of the screw adjustment where such is fitted and while this is going on the surgeon manipulates the fractured ends of the bones into position taking care that they do not press upon a large vessel he should also remove all loose spicules of bone that may be in contact with or in the neighbourhood of any large vessel when the fracture is adequately reduced and the reduction satisfactorily maintained, a carroll Dakin dressing is applied. See figures 227-228. A back splint is now affixed to study all, and the patient is returned to bed. The patient is sent to the base hospital as soon as possible with the limb slung from a stretcher bar. C. At the base hospital. The dressings are changed on the day after arrival, and the wound inspected. Before removing the dressing, it is advisable to slightly tighten up the extension, as there is always a certain amount of give in the material which forms it. The carol tubes should be changed, and the new ones should reach to every part of the wound, and especially down to and amongst the fragments of bone a bacteriological examination as to the number of organisms per field should be made and sterilization of the wound proceeded with as soon as the wound is sterile and this in the case of compound fracture of the femur has varied from the sixth to the twentieth day following injury the wound is sutured. at the end of a month the wallace maybury splint is removed and a thomas's knee splint trench pattern See Two Thirty. is substituted if foot drop be present it must be corrected from the start and the foot must be kept in inversion if the peronea muscles are not paralyzed foot drop may be avoided by the use of a foot piece or apparatus shown in figures 231-232 but its early correction is very important during the period of sterilization of the wound and the remaining time spent in bed the thigh will tend to sag allowing the fractured ends of the bone to unite at an angle this must be carefully watched for and avoided it will never happen if the extension is adequately kept up and a back splint preferably a ham splint is used to support the limb from behind see figure two thirty three at the end of the fifth or sixth week the patient is allowed up on crutches. The effect of this is to enhance union by the congestion it occasions in the dependent limb. At the end of the seventh week, massage is commenced and the patient is sent to be fitted with a caliper walking splint with which he can manage to get about with the aid of a stick. As union occurs, there is excessive formation of callus due, no doubt, to the comminution and splintering of the bone. This, in time, is to some extent absorbed. At the end of three months, bony union is firm, and the patient is now allowed to bear weight on the limb. He is then transferred to an orthopedic depot for further massage and exercises. During the period of sterilization, small emboli may occasionally become detached and lodge in the lungs. This may give rise to a slight irritating cough, which usually subsides and causes no further trouble. We have only seen this occur in connection with compound fracture of the femur. Secondary hemorrhage, septicemia, and osteomyelitis have occurred exceedingly rarely since the adoption of the carroll dakin method. But should they occur, treatment recommended in other chapters dealing with these complications should be carried out we have never found it necessary to resort to plating or bone grafting tibia and fibula compound fracture of the tibia may or may not involve the ankle or knee joints and fracture of the tibia and fibula may exist separately or in combination fracture of the tibia may range from a perforation or fissure to extensive whereas fracture of the fibula often consists in a small breach of continuity without excessive comminution see figures 242-243 compound fracture of the lower end of the fibula usually shows a greater degree of comminution and involves the ankle bone joint severe maceration of the soft structures may accompany compound fracture of the bones of the leg and frequently the anterior tibial artery, second nerve, or the posterior tibial artery, but rarely the posterior tibial nerve, are lacerated and divided. Fractures of the lower third of the tibia are extremely difficult to keep satisfactorily immobilized and in position during sterilization. Treatment A. On the battlefield the fractured limb should be thoroughly immobilized by means of one posterior and two lateral splints made from pieces of a ration box under no circumstances whatever should any attempt be made to reduce the fracture but after applying a shell dressing it should be splinted as it exists the wounded man should be carried to the motor ambulance and transferred to the casualty clearing station with as little delay as possible he may be given a quarter of a grain of morphia to relieve pain if the limb is irretrievably damaged amputation should be performed at either the advanced dressing station or the field ambulance b at the casualty clearing station shock occasioned by injuries of the leg is not usually severe consequently the patient may be operated upon soon after his arrival at the casualty clearing station after anaesthesia is induced the splints and dressing should be removed the pubes and lower extremity shaved and the skin thoroughly clean toenails should be cut short and the foot cleaned with turpentine when this is complete the surgeon should excise the wound removing detached and useless pieces of infected bone hemostasis should be secured and any divided nerve surgery if practicable when this is complete extension is affixed by means of sterile gauze and pages glue see figure two fifty one extension can be taken directly from the foot by means of a leather spat but we have found this apparatus unsatisfactory a e. thomas's knee splint is now applied and the extension is regulated by means of a screw adjustment affixed to the lower bar the extension is tightened until the bones are in position when a carol dakin dressing is put on a ham is combined with the thomas's splint and this steadies all the patient is then transferred to the base hospital c at the base hospital continuous sterilization of the wound is carried on until the bacteriologist reports the wound sterile which is usually from the tenth to the seventeenth day at this stage secondary suture is performed and the limb is now put up on a back splint and footpiece with lateral splints if the fracture be situated in the lower third of the tibia union is usually delayed and it is difficult to retain satisfactory apposition under these circumstances if the wound is sterile the fractures may be fixed either with plates or bone grafts see figures 252-253 the cases in which we found it necessary to use plates did well and no harm came of their use as union and healing occurred the stitches are removed on the tenth day and the limb is kept on a back splint and footpiece for another fortnight at the end of this period some union has usually taken place and massage and movements are begun the limb is put back on the splint with the foot at a right ankle and inverted the patient is allowed up on crutches with the injured limb kept off the ground by means of a strap placed round his neck on the second or third day following the removal of the stitches by this means a passive congestion is brought about in the wounded limb which materially hastens the formation and consolidation of the callus at the end of the seventh or eighth week following injury the splint may be omitted the patient still going about on crutches and putting no weight on the limb should foot drop be present an apparatus for its correction must be worn at the end of the tenth week the patient is fitted with a boot crooked along the inner side of the heel and sole and is now allowed to put some weight on the limb at this period he leaves for the orthopedic depot with full movements of the limb and receives further massage and exercises tarsus and metatarsus fractures of the tarsal and metatarsal bones were at one time the most difficult of all to sterilize this is explained by the complex nature of the synovial cavity surrounding them and by the fact that in our earlier cases we were too conservative fractured bone which later proved to be useless was left in situ sterilization was exceedingly slow owing to the difficulty experienced in getting the antiseptic to every part of the complex wound separation was prolonged an excessive formation of fibrous tissue with irremediable stiffness and incapacity followed. Profiting by the experience and advice of the French and Italian surgeons, we adopted new methods, which gave striking results. Treatment A on the battlefield The boots should be removed, and after application of the field or shell dressing the foot should be fixed at a right angle by means of splints made from pieces of ration box the patient should be carried to the advanced dressing station if the foot is hopelessly crushed and its vitality destroyed amputation should be performed without delay at the field ambulance morphia a quarter gram may be given before the patient is sent to the casualty clearing station B. At the casualty clearing station, after anesthesia has been induced, the limb should be shaved and washed. The foot is now scrupulously cleaned, the toenails are cut short, and the sole of foot cleaned with turpentine. The nails are scrubbed with ether soap, and the space between the toes thoroughly washed, and finally cleaned with an ether or beniodite of mercury and spirit while the wound is protected with a swab wrung out of usol. the wound is now wholly excised damaged tarsal bones should be removed and severely fractured metatarsal bones resected the metatarsal bone of the great toe should if possible always be spared owing to the important role that it plays in maintaining the arch of the foot after procuring hemostasis a carol dakin dressing is applied the foot is put up at a right ankle and kept inverted and nursed on a robert jones crab splint. the patient is then sent to the base c at the base hospital sterilization of the wound is carried out until the bacteriologist reports it fit for secondary suture if during sterilization further pieces of useless bone become obvious they must be removed without delay if stiffness and incapacity are to be avoided sterilization must be rapid and secondary suture performed early for the longer the wound remains open the greater will be the incapacity since adopting the principle of free removal of damaged bone in case of the foot sterilization has been rapid and easy an excellent function with the minimum of stiffness has resulted after secondary suture has been performed the foot must again be put up at right angles and inverted the sutures are removed on the tenth day and the patient is allowed up on crutches with his foot which is still kept inverted and at right angles slung off the ground a fortnight later he is fitted with a boot crooked along the inner side of the sole and heel and at the end of six weeks that is three weeks after the removal of the stitches he may be allowed to walk in his newly fitted boot with the aid of a crutch or stick the scapula fracture of the scapula has occurred with great frequency during the present war and is often associated with penetrating or perforating wounds of the chest the bone may be either cleanly perforated or comminuted the body of the scapula is the part of the bone most frequently involved and very rarely does a fracture of the scapula communicate with the shoulder joint treatment a on the battlefield a dressing should be applied and the arm bound securely to the side if the chest is involved the patient should be carried out of the line if, however, the chest has escaped, he can walk. B. At the cashmere's clearing station. Treatment will depend upon the result of the X-ray and the nature of the wound of the soft parts. If the wound of entry be small and the chest be penetrated, it is best to adopt expectant treatment and to treat the chest condition. If, on the other hand... The wound in the back be lacerated the chest often seems to escape penetration and the missile will usually be found between the scapula and chest wall in the latter case operation is necessary the wound must be excised broken pieces of the body of the scapula should be removed and the foreign body extracted the carol-dakin dressing is applied and the patient evacuated to the base with the arm bandaged to the side at the base hospital when the wound is reported sterile secondary seizure should be performed the stitches are removed at the end of the tenth day and at the end of another week movements are commenced and the patient encouraged to move his arm this class of case has given highly satisfactory results the majority rapidly regaining full range of movement and being discharged to perform some duty on the lines of communication it is very essential that wounds in this position should not be allowed to heal by granulation for by this means a cicatrix results which will in all probability prevent the soldier from carrying his equipment the clavicle compound fracture of the clavicle may be associated with wounds about the root of the neck or penetrating wounds of the chest a number of cases die on the battlefield as a result of injury of the large vessels which lie in near relation to this bone. The commonest site of fracture of the bone is the middle third. Displacement is often considerable, but extensive comminution is not common. Treatment A. On the battlefield the arm should be bandaged to the side and the shoulder elevated, either with a putty or a triangular bandage. A dressing should be applied and the wounded man sent to the advanced dressing station. B. At the casualty clearing station. The wound should be excised, the fractured ends of the bone manipulated into position, and a Carol Dakin dressing applied should the x-ray show the presence of a foreign body in the root of the neck it should be removed these wounds are sometimes associated with damage of the brachial plexus but it is not wise at this stage to interfere with the nerve trunks should wrist drop be present it must be corrected the arm is now put up by sayer's method and the patient evacuated to the base c at the base hospital as soon as the wound is sterile it should be sutured if the fragments of bone show a tendency to keep apart it is quite justifiable when the wound is sterile to apply a plate before performing secondary suture the stitches are removed at the end of the tenth day but the arm is kept up in bandages or other suitable apparatus for another three weeks or a month if at the end of this time the union has occurred the plate may be removed, and after the wound has healed, the patient may go about with his arm in a sling. As soon as union is firm, the sling can be discontinued, and the patient may use his arm. The Humerus Compound fracture of the humerus has been of frequent occurrence during the present war, and the fracture in the majority of instances has been both extensive and comminuted. Either the shoulder or elbow joints may be involved and injury of the musculospiral nerve with wrist drop has been a common complication in several instances the brachial or superior profunda arteries have been torn and necessitated ligature yet in this connection we have never seen gangrene of the arm result the soft structures are commonly lacerated and highly infected a rifle-bullet travelling the limb may leave a small wound of entry and exit and yet cause excessive comminution of the bone osteomyelitis septicemia and secondary hemorrhage have been extremely rare complications of injuries of this bone since the adoption of the Dakin system of treatment and the wounds as a whole sterilize easily the remote complications are stiffness and limitation of movement both at the shoulder and elbow joints but since rapid sterilization and secondary suture have been carried out with the consequent minimal amount of fibrous tissue formation and matting of the soft structures stiffness and limited movement are becoming events of the past a rare and later complication of compound fracture of the humerus has been reflex paralysis the symptoms of this condition are an increased irritability of the intrinsic muscles of the hand especially the interossei these muscles if tapped contract further the deep reflexes in the tendons surrounding the wrist are all increased the skin of the hand is blue and the local temperature subnormal if the hand is allowed to hang down it becomes hyperemic painful and local perspiration follows the condition is not understood, but it is apt to follow ligature of the brachial artery or damage to the large nerve trunks. The origin of the complaint is supposed by some to be central and confined to the sympathetic nerves, a condition of arterial spasm resulting. French surgeons have attempted a cure by exposing the main artery and stripping it to an extent of half an inch of its sympathetic coat the artery when found is exceedingly small in calibre and the operation is difficult to carry out satisfactorily and up to the present no results from such a procedure have been reported in some respects the condition resembles erythromyalgia treatment a on the battlefield after applying a dressing the arm should be bandaged to the side and the forearm across the front of the chest if hemorrhage be present, the bleeding vessel must be picked up and tied. Unless absolutely necessary, a tourniquet should not be employed. At the advanced dressing station, satisfactory hemostasis should be secured, and under no circumstances should the patient be sent on to the field ambulance with a tourniquet applied. Nothing further need be done at the field ambulance unless the limb is hopelessly mangled when amputation should be performed prior to transit to the casualty clearing station b at the casualty clearing station after thoroughly shaving and cleaning the limb and axilla, the wound should be completely excised and any detached and dead pieces and spicules of bone removed the foreign body must be found and extracted the previous x-ray will show its position and the nature of the damage done to bone divided nerve trunks if present should be sutured extension is now applied by means of sterile gauze and pages glue this may be applied to the limb anteriorly and posteriorly or laterally depending upon the position of the wound a straight arm splint thomas's is now applied an extension brought about by means of a screw adjustment which is attached to the lower bar of the splint extension is now applied while the surgeon manipulates the fragments into position as soon as reduction is effected the surgeon should take care that the fractured ends of the bone are clear of the main vessels and nerve trunks and that all detached spicules of bone are removed from their immediate neighbourhood this done a carol-dakin dressing is applied the tubes being inserted down to and amongst the fragments of bone. Under no circumstances should Carol's tube be allowed to rest against an artery or a nerve. A back is now applied, and the forearm maintained in a position of full supination. See Figure 263. C. At the base hospital. When the wound is reported, bacteriologically sterile it is submitted to secondary suture and the stitches are removed on the tenth day the arm is kept in extension for a month at the end of which period the wound is healed and some union in the bone has taken place the patient is allowed up while the wound is undergoing sterilization that is on about the fourth day after admission to the base hospital Plate eight though slightly inaccurate and exaggerated will give some idea of the way in which these patients amuse themselves they can either sit up in a chair with a splint suspended from some suitable contrivance or they may walk about with a comrade supporting the splint at a right angle to the body fractures and wounds both heal and sterilize far more quickly when the patients are up the patients both eat and sleep better the nursing is made lighter and the whole outlook is generally more cheerful for all concerned at the end of a month the straight arm splint and extension are removed under an anesthetic passive movements of the shoulder and elbow joints are performed once in order to be sure that there is no limitation of movement and the arm is put up in another kind of splint should union still be insecure the splint shown in figure two sixty four may be employed or the straight-arm splint is still retained with extension applied laterally to the upper arm only see figure two sixty five by this means movements at the elbow joint are permitted daily while the extension on the upper arm remains undisturbed see figure two sixty six the splint shown in figure two sixty four was devised by one of us for the treatment of all fractures involving the upper extremity a padded crutch hinged at a occupies the axilla At b is another joint permitting of horizontal movements the distance from b to c is adjustable by means of a screw d extension for the upper arm is taken between the padded crutch and the bar c ef is a horizontal frame hinged at the points h extension in the case of a fractured forearm is taken between the points e and f while the forearm is supported in full supination by metal troughs c this splint then allows of abduction of the shoulder joint by means of the joint a rotation of the shoulder joint at joint b and flexion and extension of the forearm at the joint h after removing the straight splint and extension and performing movements as described the forearm is put up at a right angle to the upper arm and must still be maintained in full supination. if the latter precaution is not taken much disability will result because the forearm becomes fixed in pronation, and this is very difficult to overcome unfortunately today we see many convalescent cases of fracture of the upper arm and forearm walking about with the forearm in full pronation and in which any attempt at passive supination causes much pain in fact supination is almost impossible this serious fault requires much time and patience for its correction if indeed such is possible the apparatus shown in figure 267 is one of the best of its kind for correcting the condition at the end of the fifth week massage and passive movement at the shoulder and elbow joints can be commenced the passive movements can all be carried out while the arm is in the splint shown in figure 264 at the end of the sixth or seventh week union is usually sound and the splint may be omitted the patient using a sling at this stage the patient may use his arm to do small jobs about the ward, and at the end of the eighth week he leaves the hospital for a convalescent depot with good movements in the injured limb. Fractures of the humerus in the neighborhood of the elbow joint after sterilization and suture may be put up on a Robert Jones splint, devised for injury involving the elbow joint. See figure two hundred seventy we prefer however to use the splint shown in figure two sixty four for all cases should wrist drop be present it must be corrected from the start by means of a splint which should maintain an uninterrupted dorsiflexion see plate eight left hand figure the radius and ulna compound fracture of the bones of the forearm may occur separately or in combination they may be associated with damage to nerves and arteries and the wound of the soft structures may be small and penetrating or perforating or it may be lacerated wounds of the forearm involving bone may be associated with most troublesome hemorrhage from the interosseous arteries injury of the bones of the forearm has in the majority of instances been severe comminution of a greater or lesser degree being present the secret of success is as before stated rapid sterilization and secondary suture for the longer these wounds are allowed to separate the greater will be the amount of fibrosis and scar tissue and consequently the greater the resulting stiffness and incapacity a complication always to be avoided is cross-union of the fractured bones Treatment a on the battlefield after application of the dressing the arm should be put up on a straight splint and the patient sent at once out of the line at the field ambulance nothing further need be done unless the forearm is hopelessly mutilated in which case amputation should be immediately performed b at the casualty clearing station after anaesthesia has been induced the splint should be removed and the arm and axilla shaved and washed the fingernails should be cut short and the hand and nails scrubbed clean the wound if lacerated should now be excised all detached and useless pieces of bone removed with the missile hemostasis secured and extension applied we have always used a thomas's straight arm splint for these fractures applied in exactly the same way as for a fracture of the humerus, the extension, of course, being taken from below the site of fracture. The surgeon should be satisfied that reduction is complete, and that all rough fragments of bone have been removed from the neighborhood of the blood vessels and nerves before he applies the Carroll Dakin dressing. Any divided nerve should, if practicable, be sutured the forearm must occupy a position of complete supination c at the base hospital secondary suture is performed as soon as the wound is bacteriologically sterile which is usually on about the tenth or twelfth day following injury the forearm is kept in extension and in full supination for a month the patient may get up three or four days after arrival at the base hospital at the end of a month the straight arm splint is removed under an anaesthetic and the splint shown in figure two sixty four is substituted extension is maintained if the fracture is not consolidated at the end of six weeks the extension is removed massage is commenced and the fracture is put up on anterior and posterior splints with the arm still in full supination movements at the wrist and elbow joints should be encouraged and at the end of the seventh week the patient may begin to use the arm should wrist drop be present it should be corrected from the start and this correction must be kept up uninterruptedly the trouble in these cases seems to lie in a contracted condition of the pronator quadratus but if the forearm is kept from beginning to end in full supination this difficulty will be overcome. At the end of the eighth week, the patients leave the hospital for the orthopedic depot. Carpus and Metacarpus Wounds of the carpus and metacarpus may range from a simple perforation involving one or more bones to large lacerated wounds complicated by fracture of several bones and damage of nerves and arteries. The nerves most frequently implicated are the median, or ulnar and the arteries most likely to be divided are the radial and ulnar if the wound be about the wrist or the palmar arches if it involve the hand treatment treatment aims at rapid sterilization combined with conservatism no more bone than is absolutely necessary should be removed and in this respect treatment differs from that recommended for corresponding wounds of the tarsus and metatarsus. fortunately wounds about the hand if early and thoroughly excised sterilised quickly by the carroll dakin system and on the whole most gratifying results have been obtained a convenience blend for wrist wounds is that shown in figure two seventy six the wrist being kept throughout treatment and dorsiflexion fractured metacarpals or phalanges should have extension applied the extension being taken and fastened over the end of the splint under no circumstances should a finger be amputated unless it is hopelessly destroyed as soon as the wound is sterile it is sutured if this is possible if impossible the wound edges should be approximated in order to diminish the extent of exposed tissue and what breach of the surface is left should be skin grafted. The finger should never be allowed to become contracted, and this can always be avoided by means of a suitable splint. Massage and exercises should be begun soon after the wound has healed, and the splint should be always replaced. Under no circumstances should the patient be allowed to sleep at night without his splint applied later operations will probably be required in the form of tendon or nerve transplantation and to facilitate the success of these subsequent operations it is of the highest importance to avoid fibrosis and matting of the tissues which will always follow if sterilization is delayed it is essential to hand these patients over to the orthopedic surgeon in the best possible condition for subsequent operations that is it must be seen that the wounded structures are not matted up in fibrous tissue this can only be accomplished by rapid sterilization and suture followed by massage and exercises gunshot wounds of superior and inferior maxillae a series of fourteen cases of gunshot wounds involving the maxillae contained six involving the mandible and eight the superior maxilla the wounds on the whole were of an extensive nature and in this series there was one death this class of wound may involve the soft tissues of the face the tongue the floor of the mouth the pharynx the hyoid bone or the base of the skull in two of the cases tracheotomy was necessary as edema of the glottis had occurred owing to infection of the pharyngeal wall and base of the tongue the immediate complications are one falling back of the tongue occurring in association with fracture of the mandible the patient on falling asleep suddenly wakes up cyanosed and terror-stricken consequently his sleep is fitful and restless two inability to swallow any form of nourishment it is alarming how rapidly these patients lose weight during the first eight or ten days in hospital three sepsis of a very offensive nature and showing a tendency to spread with great rapidity into the submucous tissues this complication in injuries of the upper jaw involving the pharynx has caused a rapidly spreading edema of the glottis, necessitating as already stated tracheotomy in two cases for the presence of foreign bodies in the substance of the tongue causing acute swelling and edema of this organ we have in five cases extracted from the tongue pieces of the mandible and teeth five acute spreading erysipelas which has been an ever-present danger in all wounds involving the face six septic pneumonia a remote complication to guard against is a neurasthenic and despondent state which is very apt to occur and when once established is most difficult of treatment these patients refuse to eat, will not speak unless spoken to, and rapidly go downhill. The danger is best overcome by nursing them in a convalescent ward with wounded men who are waiting to go to England, by encouraging them to roll bandages or run errands, or to do anything which will keep them employed. These men should never be allowed the use of a looking-glass. Treatment of the Immediate complications this in great part should be carried out as soon as the wounded man reaches the casualty clearing station it consists in thoroughly cleaning the wound in the soft parts excising as little as possible carefully paring the skin edges and suturing both mucous membrane and skin the former with catgut the latter with silkworm gut. Special attention should be paid to the corners of the mouth and the lip margins these must be securely and accurately sutured first and finally the soft parts forming the cheek chin and floor of the mouth should be dealt with small tubes being left in the most dependent parts frequent mouth washes must be used and a dressing of ten per cent ichthyol in glycerin may be used as a prophylactic against erysipelas. Should foreign bodies be present in the substance of the tongue, they must be extracted. If cases are left unsutured until they reach the base hospital, they are by this time so extremely offensive and septic that immediate operation is out of the question, and we have been compelled to wait seven or eight days before any plastic operation could be undertaken during this time the patient has gone downhill and is at this stage in a far worse condition to stand an operation which might have well been done at once at the casualty clearing station we would therefore recommend immediate operation at the casualty clearing station because the wounds heal in the great majority of cases and much subsequent suffering is avoided treatment at the base hospital has for the first seven or eight days been directed to sterilizing the soft parts and carroll's method has given both rapid and excellent results it is exceedingly difficult to feed these men and in some cases rectal feeding must be resorted to during the period of sterilization the mouth and tongue require constant attention and for these a hydrogen peroxide mouthwash is recommended sleep has been a difficult problem during this period as the patient constantly wakes with a start and finds he is choking this has been in some extent overcome by threading a silkworm gut suture through the tongue and fastening a pair of spencer wells forces on the end of the suture another difficulty is that the patient's tongue and pharynx get very dry and dirty brown mucoid flakes become deposited there needing constant removal we have used borax and glycerin for cleaning and keeping these parts moist when once the wound is reasonably clean and one may allow some latitude in the case of the mouth suture is performed in every case with one exception the wounds healed well approximation and fixation of the fragments is an important point to consider at this juncture and every operation has been carried out with the co-operation of the dental surgeon who has at the time taken a cast and made a dental splint if there has been no great breach of continuity in the body of the mandible much can be done by the surgeon towards manipulating the fragments into position before suturing the soft parts providing the sutures hold and in every case but one they have then the surrounding soft parts form an excellent accessory splint for the broken mandible a temporary external splint is fixed over all and careful attention to the mouth and dressing twice daily of the wound with ten percent ichthyol in glycerin form the immediate after treatment the patients are allowed up the day after operation the way in which they make good loss of weight and the ease with which they sleep after the suture has been performed is surprising some cases were able to eat eggs fish minced chicken and bread and butter a fortnight after suture it is important to see that there is no tension on the sutures approximating the soft parts. It is preferable to perform some flap operation rather than to trust to tension when approximating prepared surfaces. For sutured wounds of the face in which tension has been used will often break down. The patients will always try to talk or to convey their thoughts by expression, all of which will put further tension on the sutures lastly the lips and structures forming the buccal orifice should always be dealt with first as to ensure a buccal orifice which will neither break down nor contract consequently in this region mucous membrane must be accurately approximated to mucous membrane and the line of the lip accurately maintained if a portion of the lip be missing then a plastic operation should be undertaken to replace it. Deficiencies in the teeth can be undertaken when the soft parts have become healed and consolidated, and the dental splint must be applied at the earliest possible moment. End of chapter 18